Well, as, even as Gordon prayed, the theme of our conference is the doctrine of election and evangelism and the relationship between these two doctrines. Both are biblical doctrines. Someone once asked John MacArthur, the well-known Bible teacher, do you believe in election? And MacArthur Riley responded, well, that word is in the Bible. Indeed it is. That word is in the Bible. And so if we are to be Bible-believing Christians, we need to believe in election. Here's a sampling of some places in Scripture where the concept of choosing appears. Deuteronomy 4, 37. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Deuteronomy 10, 15. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. Deuteronomy 17, 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 1 Samuel 2, 28. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? And the expected rhetorical answer to the rhetorical question is yes. 2 Samuel 6 and verse 21. David says, The Lord chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. 1 Kings 8.16 I chose David to be over my people Israel. <laughs> Nehemiah 7, or pardon me, Nehemiah 9 and verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Psalm 47 and verse 4 He chose our heritage for us. Psalm 65 and verse 4 Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Psalm 78, 68, and 70. He chose the tribe of Judah. He chose David. Isaiah 14 and verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. Jeremiah 49, 19 and Jeremiah 50 and verse 44. These are par- sorry, not only parallel verses but identical verses. They both say, And I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Ezekiel 20 and verse 5. On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? John 15 and verse 16, Jesus says to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John 15 verse 19, I chose you out of the world. Acts 13 and verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. That's literally just a sampling. 
That's not exhaustive. And here are some places where the very word election is mentioned. Matthew 24, 22, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. And there are parallel passages in Mark as well, but I won't read them for the sake of avoiding redundancy. Then Luke 18 and verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Romans 9.11. In order that God's purpose of election may continue. Romans 11 and verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Romans 11.28. As regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Titus 1.1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. 1 Peter 1.1, to those who are elect exiles. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, confirm your calling and election. This is not an invention of theologians. There is a biblical doctrine of election. There is a biblical doctrine of choosing. In view of all these aforementioned instances in the scripture of election or choosing, every Bible-believing Christian must believe in election or choosing. If one professes the Bible to be, professes to believe the Bible to be God's word, then the question cannot be, do I believe in election? We have to answer in our own hearts, honestly, as John MacArthur did. Well, that word is in the Bible. So the question cannot be, do I believe in election? The question rather needs to be, what does the word election mean? What does the Bible mean when it says election? And when we come to answer that question, we see that there are three types of election in the Bible pertaining to people. And I say pertaining to people to distinguish election of people from election of objects, events, or even angels. There are three types of election in the Bible pertaining to people. One type is national election. God chose the nation of Israel from among the nations of the earth to receive fuller revelation from God. And to have a unique relationship to God. God chose the Israelite nation to relate to him in a way that he did not choose for the Ammonites or the Philistines or the Amalekites or any other nation on the earth to relate to him. God chose Israel. Now, this election, this national election, is not an election unto salvation from sin. God didn't choose Israel to be saved from sin in the sense that every Jew, everyone descended biologically from Jacob, or his name was changed to Israel, which is why we call them Israelites. God did not choose, in choosing the nation of Israel, every individual member of that nation 
to be saved from their sin. Rather, God chose the nation as a whole to receive fuller revelation of himself and to have a unique relationship to him whereby there was a better opportunity, yes, for individual Jews to be saved from their sin. But God, we must distinguish that this national election of Israel is not an election unto salvation from sin. Not every Jew went to heaven. Another biblical type of election is election unto service or unto an office. People are chosen by God in the Bible for certain tasks or roles. Again, not for salvation from sin. Notice, when we talk about this kind of election, that's not what we're talking about. Not everyone who is chosen by God in the Bible for a role of service goes to heaven. There are those who did go to heaven who were also saved from sin and chosen for a specific office. For example, David, who even in the verses that I read to you a few moments ago, we see was chosen to be king over Israel and not chosen by the people, but chosen by God to be king over Israel. And he happened to be saved from sin, but he wasn't saved from sin because he was chosen to be the king of Israel. And that's apparent from the fact that all of the other kings of Israel, some of them were saved from their sin and some of them weren't. So the fact that you were chosen to be a king of Israel doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be saved from sin. The apostles are other examples of those who were clearly chosen by God for service and who were clearly chosen by God unto an office. But actually, we see even among those who were chosen, Judas, the betrayer. And so though all of the other apostles were saved from their sin, they were not saved from their sin by virtue of having been chosen by God to be numbered among the apostles. And so again, there is this distinction between God's choosing of someone unto an office or unto a role versus any potential choosing of a person unto salvation. We see, and just to drive this point home that, the, that choosing unto service or unto an office is not the same as choosing someone for salvation from sin, we see that even the pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, is called by God in Isaiah 45 and verse 1, my anointed. God chose Cyrus for a particular role, a particular purpose in his plan, and yet he was a pagan king who has far as I know, was not saved from sin. So, the first biblical type of election is a national election. And that's not a choice by God to save from sin everyone in that nation. The second biblical type of election is election unto service or unto an office. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone that God chooses to fulfill a particular role or to do a particular service is also saved from their sin. There are many who were not. Those are the first two types of election of people in the Bible, which are clearly biblical. But there is a third, which is equally biblical. 
In the Bible, God chooses individuals to be saved from sin. That this type of election is found in the Bible is as clear as the other two types. Israel was chosen for a privileged relationship with God. People were chosen for roles of service and individuals are chosen for salvation. There clearly are elect people. Even some of the verses that I read to you at the beginning demonstrate that. There are elect people who are chosen unto holiness and blamelessness before God. Ephesians chapter 1. Those who are elected unto adoption as sons, justification, there clearly are an elect people. Historically, the debate has not been, is there an election unto salvation or not? Rather, the debate has been about the basis of God's choice of individuals unto salvation. Why has God chosen one person and not another? Is election conditional upon a distinguishing attribute of the people who God decides to choose? Or does God choose unconditionally individual people to be saved without taking into account the various attributes or properties that distinguish people from one another? Arminianism is the theological name for those who disagree with the historic Reformed understanding of election. And their name comes from a historic proponent of a dissenting view, just as Calvinism comes from a historic proponent of the Reformed view. And we need to be clear about this. Arminians don't follow a man any more than Calvinists follow a man in espousing or holding to their theological system. Everyone on both sides is simply trying to be biblical. The labels come from the historic debate between those who supported Calvin's view and those who supported the views of Jacob Arminius when the debate arose in the Netherlands so long ago. If I may digress for a moment, I do hear people, both Calvinists and Arminians, say from time to time something like this. I'm not a Calvinist or an Arminian. I'm just a Bible-believing Christian. And I respect the impulse that's behind that statement. People sometimes, for whatever reason, don't like to use the terminology associated with the debate, and they don't want to wear those labels. That's fine. But when we understand what these labels mean and what these labels represent, logically, saying you're not a Calvinist or you're not an Arminian as to a certain point of doctrine is something like saying, I'm not a man or a woman, I'm just a person. Because... Here's the thing. Calvinism and Arminianism are binary options when it comes to each of the so-called five points. You can mix and match the five points and have a system that is somewhat incoherent. But as it comes to each of the five points, you either believe that humans have been affected by sin in the totality of our being, or they haven't been affected by sin in the totality of our being. It obviously has to be one or the other. You either believe that election is conditional, 
or unconditional. Again, there is no third option. Election is either conditional or unconditional. You either believe that Jesus atoned for the sins of all people without exception, or that he atoned only for the sins of his elect people. Again, there is no other option. You either believe that you can ultimately resist the Holy Spirit's attempt to woo and win you to faith in Christ, or you believe that you cannot ultimately resist the Holy Spirit's attempts to woo and win you to faith in Christ. And you either believe that the Holy Spirit guarantees your perseverance in the faith, or you believe that He does not guarantee your perseverance in the faith. So that's a digression, but I think it's important as we are using the terminology of Calvinists and Arminians this weekend, just to clarify that issue in our mind, that you have to land historically, where either where the Calvinists landed on particular points, or historically where the Arminians landed on particular points. They're binary options. So if you don't like the labels, that's fine, but you do need to understand that your doctrine will line up with one side or the other on each of those five points. But with that in mind, let's get back to the main point that I was making, which is that historically the debate has not been, is there election unto salvation or not? Rather, the debate has been about the basis of God's choice. Is election conditional upon a distinguishing attribute of the people who God decides to choose? Or does God choose unconditionally without taking into account the various attributes that distinguish people from one another? Here's the classic Arminian position on election, taken from those who supported the teachings of Arminius himself in the first of five articles of remonstrance written in the year 1610. God, by an eternal and unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ his Son, before the foundation of the world, has determined that out of the fallen sinful race of men, to save in Christ, for Christ's sake and through Christ, those who through the grace of the Holy Spirit shall believe on this his Son Jesus, and shall persevere in this faith and obedience of faith through this grace, even to the end. That's something that a lot of modern-day Arminians would disagree with. But then we're, we're, we're talking about a whole other set of complex issues. Historically, as I mentioned at the beginning, both sides of this debate could see that the choosing of persons is very much a biblical idea. The choosing of persons unto salvation is very much a biblical idea. So they didn't deny election altogether. They simply argued that it was conditional. Jack Cottrell, a more modern proponent of Arminianism, argues that election is the idea that God predestines to save those individuals who meet the gracious conditions which he has set forth. For Arminians then, the conditions of election are faith and perseverance. Those whom God knows will believe and persevere are chosen for salvation. So again, there really shouldn't be 
a debate about whether individuals are chosen for salvation or not. Both Arminians and Calvinists historically have agreed with that. It is reasonable and important, however, to discuss whether election is conditional, as the historical Arminians argued, or whether it is unconditional, as the historical Calvinists argued. And where else would we return to resolve this debate but the scriptures? And where else in the scriptures would we turn but a passage that is about election and deals with common objections to the doctrine of election set forth there? Romans 9. Turn with me to Romans 9, where Paul lays out the spirit-inspired and authoritative last word on election. Paul begins in verses 6 and 7 by explaining that there is an election within an election. People were confused because Israel seemed to be missing God's salvation as the vast majority of Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul explains in Romans, 6, Romans 9, 6 and 7, that not all who are ethnically Jewish are the true Israel whom God ultimately purposes to save. And in verse 8, he elaborates to explain that there are individuals within Israel who are elected unto salvation. So let me read this and look for this train of thought. That there is a national election of all Israelites to stand in privileged relationship to God, as we talked about earlier. They received more revelation than other nations and had a better opportunity to be saved in those, than those in other nations. But there are individuals within Israel who have been individually chosen, not merely to have the opportunity to be saved, but actually to be saved. Listen to this train of thought. Romans 9, beginning at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what we see here is that not all of Abraham's descendants or Isaac's descendants or Jacob's descendants are those whom God has chosen to save from their sin. All of Jacob's descendants are part of Israel, which has been nationally elected to receive fuller revelation and to stand in the privileged relationship to God, but not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. So in one sense, they're elect, but in another sense, there are people within the nation of Israel who are chosen by God to receive the salvation from sins that not all in Israel will receive. God has chosen individuals from among the Jews who are to receive salvation. And Paul will tell us later in the chapter that God has also chosen individuals from the Gentiles or non-Jews to be saved from their sin. These people are the true heirs to the fullness of God's promises. These elect people are the true Israel. 
This is the thrust of Romans 9, verses 6 to 8, and verses 24 to 26, later in the chapter. Then in verse 7, corroborating this point, Paul considers an example, Isaac and Ishmael. He doesn't say the name Ishmael, but the contrast is apparent if you know your Old Testament history. He says, not all children, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And the context of that is way back in Genesis where God, where Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael may stand before you. But God says, no, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so God treats Ishmael and Isaac differently. And God has chosen Isaac to be the child of promise and to be a recipient of salvation, to be true spiritual Israel and not Ishmael. But lest anybody object that though the sons had the same father, yes, Abraham, they had a different mother. There was Sarah and then there was Hagar. And so the two different mothers might be a distinguishing factor the son of the free woman and the son of the slave woman, as Galatians tells us. And so Paul uses another example. In verse 9, he begins talking about, or pardon me, in verse 10, he begins talking about Jacob and Esau. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob and Esau had the same father and the same mother. They weren't even born yet and had done nothing, either good or bad. And Paul explicitly states that Jacob was elect and Esau was not. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul's example couldn't be clearer. There is nothing in individuals which distinguishes them from one another so that God chooses some who have distinguished themselves from the others on the basis of the distinctions they have made from one another. God does not choose one person for salvation because they are better than another, more obedient, wiser, more humble, more receptive, more faithful, etc. Paul is quite clear. It had nothing to do with anything that Jacob or Esau did, either good or bad. Yet God chose one of them for salvation and not the other. And God's choice 
God's choice to save an individual is not predicated upon his observation of their works, either good or bad. God's choice to save an individual is not predicated upon his foreknowledge of their works, either good or bad. Paul explicitly states that the election of Jacob and not Esau occurred apart from works, whether good or bad. Whether observed in time or foreknown. Because if foreknown works was the basis of Jacob's election and not Esau's, then that would render Paul's argument here wrong, fallacious. Paul is demonstrating here that the election is not based on works, which would include foreknown works. And as Paul is using that example as an example of how all election of individuals to salvation works, we cannot say that the election of Jacob is an exceptional case. What Paul is doing here is explaining why some of the Jews believe and some of the Jews don't believe. He's explaining some believe because they are elected unto salvation. Others don't believe because they are not. That is the whole problem that Paul is trying to solve theologically as he comes to these examples of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And he explains that as it was with Jacob and Esau, so it is more generally. So God's choice to save an individual is not predicated upon his observation of their works, good or bad. And as Paul goes on, he makes it clear that God's choice to save an individual is not predicated upon his observation of or foreknowledge of their faith either. Paul explicitly deals with this in Romans 9. Faith is, I think we can all agree, the choice that we make with our will. Correct? To trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 9.16, listen to Romans 9.16, in which Paul summarizes his argument so far. So then it, that is election, depends not on human will or exertion. What Paul is saying here is that not only did God not consider any works done, either good or bad, but lest someone might object and say, well, he's talking about like good works and earning your salvation and that stuff, but God foresaw who would have faith and he chose those whom he foresaw would have faith. Paul actually explicitly addresses that right here. Where he says it depends not on human will. The it, when he says it depends not, is election. Paul's summarizing his argument so far by saying, so you can see from the example of Jacob and Esau that election had nothing to do with how Jacob and Esau you would use their will or with the things that they would do otherwise, good or bad. Election depends rather, look at Romans 9.16 again, on God. 
who has mercy. That's Paul's clear teaching in Romans 9. And that's the big idea of this message. God has unconditionally chosen some individuals for salvation. Unconditionally chosen some individuals for salvation. Again, remember, there is an election. You can just see that. The word's in the Bible. There is an election unto salvation. So the question is, is it conditional or is it unconditional? And Paul lays the argument to rest, showing very clearly, teaching very explicitly here in Romans 9 that the election unto salvation is unconditional. There was not something that God observed or foresaw in Jacob, which caused him to choose Jacob. Rather, it was God's mercy, which was the deciding factor. God had mercy upon Jacob and did not have mercy upon Esau. For many people, at this point, objections arise. Let's deal with the most common one. The most common objection that people raise against this, which is the Reformed understanding of election. The most common objection that people raise to this is that it is unjust. It's not fair. It's not right for God to choose one person for salvation and not another. In responding to this objection, the first thing that we should notice is that that is exactly the objection that Paul anticipates in Romans 9 and verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If you find yourself this morning objecting to the doctrine of election as I have just articulated it, on the grounds that it's unjust, you need to realize that you are actually vocalizing the position of the opponents and the critics of the apostle and his teaching rather than the position of Paul himself. And that's not a good thing. We want to be on the side of the apostles speaking and writing against the critics of apostolic doctrine rather than finding ourselves on the other side of the apostles speaking and writing against apostolic doctrine. Even if you don't like the apostles' doctrine yet, it is important as a Bible-believing Christian to allow yourself to be corrected by the Scriptures, even when it's uncomfortable. Let me tell you a personal story about my journey to embrace the Reformed understanding of election. A number of years ago, I held the Arminian position on election. Yet a good friend of mine held the Calvinistic position, and he was always trying to convince me. And I had to write an exegetical paper for a course I was enrolled in in seminary. That is, a paper explaining what a particular passage teaches. 
And I could choose any text in the Bible that I wanted. So I thought to myself, I'm going to write a paper on Romans 9 and settle this once and for all. I chose Romans 9. I chose Romans 9 to settle this issue once and for all with my friend. But as I worked through Romans 9, I found myself coming to an uncomfortable fork in the road. To choose to believe what the Bible actually says, in spite of my discomfort with it and my resistance toward it, or to figure out what I can think and say, which allows me to avoid or ignore what the Bible actually says, and yet stay in my comfort zone. And I can see that choice developing before me because, listen, I did not like the doctrine of election, as I have just articulated it this morning. I found that to be very repulsive. But as I was working my way through Romans 9, trying to write this exegetical paper for my seminary class, I was seeing this is actually what Paul is saying. There was nothing that distinguished Jacob from Esau in God's eyes, which caused him to elect Jacob unto salvation and not Esau. It is not of him who wills or runs, as the King James Version says, but of him that hath mercy. Depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I came to accept in time not at that time, I still handed in my paper arguing against the Reformed understanding. But I came to see in time, and that was a step on my journey. I came to accept in time the Reformed understanding of the doctrine of election. I came to accept it before I liked it. For a while, it was an un- un- uncomfortable and bothersome doctrine to me, but I could see that the Bible taught it. And I could see that my objections to this doctrine were the objections being raised by Paul's opponents in Romans 9, rather than the teaching being put forward by Paul himself. And so I realized that I was on the wrong side of the apostle, arguing against him actually in the very way that he anticipated rather than believing what he himself was teaching in Romans 9. Paul is teaching explicitly that election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The objection that unconditional election is unjust is an objection that his opponents raise. It's taking a position contrary to the Apostle Paul. And as I said, that's not a good thing. Beyond simply saying this, beyond simply saying that Paul teaches this though, and so we should believe it, let's spend a few minutes trying to respond to the substance of this objection, that it is unjust. 
And here's the proper, the heart of a proper response to this objection. The payment of a debt is not mercy. Mercy is, by definition, beyond what is owed. Louis Burkhoff is helpful to us here. He says, The fact that God favors some and passes by others does not warrant the charge that he is guilty of injustice. We can speak of injustice only when one party has a claim on another. If God owed the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all men, it would be an injustice if he saved only a limited number of them. But the sinner has absolutely no right or claim on the blessings which flow from divine election. As a matter of fact, he has forfeited these blessings. Not only have we no right to call God to account for election, electing some and passing others by, but we must admit that he would be perfectly just if he had not saved any. So, in other words, Burkhoff is teaching us here, helping us see that unless we're prepared to say that God owes everyone salvation from sin, we cannot claim injustice if God chooses not to save everyone. This is the heart of Paul's rebuttal here in this passage, Romans 9. No, it's not unjust for God to elect Jacob over Esau. If God owed Esau salvation, then God could never have talked about salvation as mercy, which he does in verse 15. But since God does talk about salvation as mercy, as per the quote in verse 15, then we may infer that salvation is not owed. Either salvation is a debt that God owes people, or it is not, and God doesn't owe anyone salvation. It can't be both, and it can't be neither. If your neighbor wants a brand new car, and he comes to you and he asks you for $50,000 so that he can go down to Simpson Motors and purchase himself a car, if you don't owe him any money, then it is not unjust for you to say no. You're withholding mercy or grace from this person. You're, you're not going above and beyond what you're called to do, what you owe him. But he could never say you are unjust for withholding $50,000 from him, for you don't owe him that $50,000. However, if you owe your neighbor $50,000 and he comes and asks you for it and you do not give it to him, then you are unjust. This is how election works. And this is Paul's point. If you're talking about what is owed, then you may speak about injustice. But if you are speaking about mercy, 
then by definition you are not speaking about what is owed. Therefore, since salvation is a merciful act of God, which I'm sure all of us would agree with, if salvation is a merciful act of God, then we are forced to concede that God is not unjust to choose some individuals and not others. Mercy means what is not owed. If salvation is mercy, it's not owed. And for God to withhold it from someone is not, therefore, unjust. God would not be unjust to leave us all in our sins and save none. To say otherwise is to make salvation a debt that God owes each and every person, which is plainly contrary to Scripture. Therefore, we ought not to be talking about the injustice of God choosing to save some, but not all. Instead, we should be talking about the mercy that God would save any. The doctrine of election, the first application of this doctrine of election is that we ought to be in awe of God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, the well of grace is deeper than you thought. You thought that God provided the possibility of your salvation. And you took advantage of it. You thought, to use Jack Cottrell's words that I quoted earlier, you thought that you met the gracious conditions which God has set forth. You thought that there was something in you that prompted God to save you. But in view of what we've considered today, you see now that the whole thing was unconditional mercy. He loved you, believer in Christ Jesus. God loved you, particularly with an everlasting love. Apart from anything that He foresaw that you would do, either good or bad. And apart from anything that He foresaw that you would do with your will, election wasn't based on either of those things. God in His sovereign good pleasure simply loved you with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the world, aside from anything that you did, anything that you chose, God simply loved you. Now hear me, I'm not saying Christians, God loved y'all. I'm saying Christian, God loved you. Personally, you were known unto God and loved by God from before the foundation of the earth. It is an unconditional election of sheer mercy. Grace, then, 
is more gracious than you thought. Let's consider one of the implications of believing that election is conditional. If God provides the mere possibility of salvation to all people and then chooses to save those who meet the gracious conditions that He set forth, then you must concede that you believe, Arminian Christian, that you have met those conditions. Were you wiser than all of your family members, friends, neighbors? Were you less stubborn than they? Were you more receptive than they? Were you smarter than they? Were you more moral than they? What conditions is it exactly that you met which prompted God to choose you which your loved ones, your family members, your friends, your neighbors who are outside of Christ have not yet met? However you want to say it, the uncomfortable truth is that If you believe in conditional election, you believe that you were chosen to be saved because of something different in you, some condition meeting in you, which actually, at the end of the day, one way or the next, we have to say, in some sense, makes you better than others. Even if it's just receptivity, wisdom, Humility, good sense to recognize your desperate plight when others have not yet recognized their desperate plight. You may not have thought it out like that. I recognize not everyone consciously thinks about it in those terms. But are not those the unescapable conclusions? That you think that there is something better that you have done. Which, and for that, God has chosen you for salvation. By contrast, the view of election that Paul teaches in Romans 9 that I'm laying before you today informs you that you are just as lost as the others. That you are just as proud as the others. You are just as resistant as the others. You were just as blind as the others. You loved your sin as much as the others. That there is nothing different in you. There was nothing different in you over against those who are still outside of Christ, which prompted God to choose you. But for nothing in you, God set His love upon you. Though you were no different. You saw Christ in His glory at some point. If you were a Christian. And believed. You did exercise your faith. Your will. But you saw. Because God saw to it. 
in time that your eyes were opened. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us. But God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of the sun. You were blind, but now you see. You didn't see a little bit, and now you see a lot. You were blind, but now you see. You used your will to choose Christ. Yes. But you willed to choose Christ because God willed to choose you. In other words, when you made your choice to come to Christ, underneath were the everlasting arms carrying you to the foot of the cross. Around you was the grace of God, which He has decreed from the beginning would be poured out on you. It's because of His electing love at the bottom that you can say you are a Christian. And so grace, grace is more gracious than you thought. The doctrine of election ought to put you in awe of God's mercy. Another application of this doctrine is that you ought to have appropriately low thoughts of yourself. This doctrine ought to humble you. Now, humility is not simply saying bad things about yourself all the time or assuming that you're wrong all the time. Humility is not to be confused with uncertainty or cowardice or self-deprecation. But humility is having a realistic view of yourself. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Which means that you ought to have appropriately low thoughts of yourself. As I ought to also. Since, let's be realistic, neither you nor I are a good catch, so to speak. Quite the opposite. The doctrine of election teaches us, as I mentioned a moment ago, that we were not so much smarter, wiser, more receptive, humble, holy than other people, and therefore God chose us. It was not that God looked at us and just simply could not resist us for the conditions that we met. Rather, the doctrine of election teaches us that it was not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, that God chose us for salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. All our righteousness was as filthy rags. We were lost. We were blind. These are things that the scripture says about our state prior to being born again. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a number of sins and references the sinners who do such things. And then he says to the Corinthian Christians, and such were some of you. doctrine of election ought to remind us that such were we. When we think about who, who we are and what God has done for us, we ought to remember such were we. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved not a decent guy like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
God did not choose us because of what we were, but in spite of what we were. In Psalm 103, verse 14, we read that God remembers that we are dust. Election helps us remember that we are dust. Election ought to help us have appropriately low thoughts of ourselves. And lastly, by way of application, the third doctrine, or pardon me, the third application of this doctrine is that it is a great comfort to believers. What does it do to your heart to hear that you have been loved with an everlasting love? As I was speaking about that even just a few moments ago, what was happening in your heart to hear that you were loved, you, not y'all, you, were loved with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the earth. To know that this love wasn't offered to you because of some condition you met. It's not conditional love. It's unconditional love. Which means that as there was nothing you did to get it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. What does it do to your heart to know that as God loves you today, He loved you in eternity past and shall love you endlessly. What does it do to your heart to know that you have the love of one who is not fickle or disloyal, but you have the love of one who knows you and sees you inside and out, all your evil, all your sin, all your insecurities, all of your darkness, and nevertheless loves you without end. Who will never quit on you. Who will never divorce. Who will never drift. Who is committed to you not until death do you part. But one who is committed to you without parting for eternity. What does it do to your heart to know that you have the love of God who is himself love? And not because you have met conditions, but in spite of your failing to meet conditions. So you know he's never going to drop you. Comfort, brothers and sisters. Those are a few applications of the doctrine of unconditional election drawn as you've seen from scripture can you think of any applications of this doctrine to the task of evangelism I'll leave you in suspense on that and we'll talk about evangelism after the break